Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 19th, 2023. Uh, it's a Wednesday. Tomorrow is O'Day, Oppenheimer Day. The movie's just about to come out. I'm going to be going to my local cinema to be seeing it. We're also doing a show tomorrow with Greg Mitchell, the author of The Beginning or the End, a book about how Hollywood and America learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. We're also going to do a show uh, with Olivia uh, Ruttigliano, Lit Hub's movie editor, on uh, the movie on Friday. So I'm excited about that. Uh, and my guest today is a particularly distinguished observer of American contemporary or modern history, Evan Thomas. Um, he has a new book out uh, on the Oppenheimer or one of the consequences of Oppenheimer's development of the nuclear bomb, Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. The book came out a couple of months ago, but of course it's particularly relevant uh, in the week that the movie's coming out. Uh, Evan believes that uh, the bomb saved countless lives, even if he believes also that it shouldn't be used again. And he also thinks that the alternatives to dropping the bomb would have been far worse. He's joining us from um, Martha's Vineyard, where uh, it's about as steamy Evan as, as Hawaii. <laughs> Still pretty nice. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Speaking uh, of Hawaii, Evan, um, Pearl Harbor, of course, imprinted itself on American consciousness, understandably. What role do you think revenge played in the context of dropping the bomb? I know we can come up with all sorts of reasonable, rational reasons for dropping this weapon. But was there an element of revenge, too, for one kind of Japanese atrocity or other? Yes. Uh, in fact, after we dropped the first bomb, there was a conversation between uh, General Marshall, who was the Army Chief of Staff and kind of the head of the armed forces, and uh, Hap Arnold, who was head of the Air Force, and General Groves, who was in charge of the project that built the atom bomb. And they were feeling, you know, a little uneasy about all the loss of life here. But uh, one of them, and I think it was Arnold, backed by Grove, said, you know, reminded uh, they shouldn't feel too bad about it because of Pearl Harbor uh, and also the Bataan Death March. There was a desire, this is a couple of leaders talking about it, but there was a popular feeling in the United States that we should get revenge on the Japanese for their atrocities. Uh, Pearl Harbor wasn't an atrocity, it was a surprise attack, but people were still pretty mad about it. But the Japanese were guilty of some atrocities and they got publicity in the United States. There's a famous photograph of a, I think it was an Australian prisoner of war being beheaded by a Japanese soldier. That was in Life magazine. Millions of people saw that. And there was a desire for wrench. That's not now, importantly, that's not the only thing going on here at all. There are lots of reasons to drop those bombs. But revenge was a factor. You're a best-selling writer, Evan. You've written all sorts of books. One of America's most distinguished um, contemporary historians and journalists as well. 
Uh, the book comes with an interesting subtitle, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. Sometimes when I get authors on the show, they separate themselves politely from their subtitles, suggesting, well, the editor came up with that, and it, I didn't really quite mean it like that. When I read the subtitle of this book, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II, I get the sense it's the narrative building around these three men, Henry Stimson, the American Secretary of War, Carl Spatz, uh, head of the Air Force, um, and uh, the Japanese Foreign Minister, uh, Shigenoro Togo. Is that fair? Is that what you meant to do in this book, is build the narrative around these three men? Very much. Uh, this is a narrative. Look, there are a lot of books about dropping the atom bomb dozens, scores, hundreds. Uh, what I wanted to do was get in the heads of three people who were essentially involved in this issue of dropping the bomb and whether or not Japan would surrender. And I needed to find people where I could do that who had diaries or letters and a way in because what really interests me is the whole issue of moral ambiguity when people have to make terrible decisions where there's no good outcome, a lot of people are going to die, whatever you do. And so you have to choose. And often you don't have very good information in real time. You know, things are always clearer in hindsight. Things that are clear to us now were not clear to the people making these decisions in 1945. But I'm endlessly interested in what it's like for decision makers who have to decide these terrible things. And this is, there's nothing more terrible than dropping an atom bomb or two. But in this case, I do believe, and I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming, that horribly, these bombs save lives. They killed, I mean, they killed 200,000 people. There's still an argument over exactly how many, but roughly 200,000 people died because of these bombs. How horrible is that? And a lot of people think that's an atrocity. But I think the evidence is pretty clear that if we hadn't dropped those bombs, we would either have to invade Japan that was going to cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of American soldiers, not to mention hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Japanese soldiers, or and perhaps more likely, we were going to blockade Japan and strangle them. And what does that mean? Death by starvation. The Japanese in August 1945 were, were down to about 1,500 calories a day. They were eating you know, nuts and berries, acorns. And uh, we have figured out a way to bomb the rail lines that lead to the Kanto Plain, where most, most about two-thirds of Japan lived on this plain around Tokyo. They depended on rice. Rice brought to them by train. And we'd figured out how to bomb those rail lines. And so we were gonna we were in a position to create mass starvation. With a, even if we had not used those bombs, to use mass starvation to reduce Japan. And maybe by I mean, this is a counterfactual, I'm I'm guessing at this, I'm speculating, but by say Christmas of 1945, mass famine, where millions died. Uh, civil war. I mean, nothing good coming of it. So this is a 
awful equation. I don't, nobody felt good about this. In fact, the people I wrote about were stricken with guilt about it. They didn't feel good about it. The Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, was guilty. Tui Spots, the uh, strategic uh, air commander, felt guilty. And they, they, Spots wrote in his, in his diary on uh, August 11th, after the bombs had dropped, I was against dropping the atom bomb, except that I was persuaded that it, it just, I was against dropping the atom bomb, just as I've always been against bombing, wiping out cities full of civilians. This guy had bombed Europe. He'd been in charge of the bombing of Europe, including Dresden. And he said, I was against that, but I was persuaded that it would save lives. And I think the record shows that it would have. These are historical counterfactuals, as they say. You know, we're speculating here, but I, I think that's the truth. I wonder if there are some other seats around your table of moral ambiguity. Uh, you, Three of the seats, uh, you, as you suggested, Henry Stimson, Carl Spatz, and the Japanese foreign minister. What about the man who made the decision to bomb? Ultimately, the buck stops yeah. there. I think that was the phrase he put on his desk, Harry Truman. Uh, there's an Oxford philosopher, uh, Margaret Ounsom, who uh, I think in 1950, when Oxford decided to give uh, Truman an honorary doctorate at the university, was very public in suggesting that he shouldn't get it because of his decision. Why did you choose not to include Truman? After all, when it came to moral ambiguity, he was on lots of fronts a master. Yeah, that's true. Uh, a couple of things. One is, uh, <laughs> this is a problem for historians, the record on Truman is actually murky because Truman made up things about his own role. Uh, he exaggerated his own involvement in the bomb. And so historians, and this is not just me talking here, this is people who have come before me, found that Truman, the record, Truman's own record is unreliable on this. Now, it's not true that it, it was said by Groves. The guy, the guy who ran the Manhattan Project is a general named Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon in the movie. This Have you seen the movie, movie. yet? Uh, no, no, can't wait. Cannot wait. I read just read a review of it. New York Times, it sounds like an incredibly good movie. I cannot wait to see it. But the, the, the Groves is a very important figure in the movie. He He's Oppenheimer's employer, really. He's, he's the general who runs the Manhattan Project that made the atom bomb. So he's a key figure. And he said after the war that Harry Truman, the president, was like a little boy on a toboggan. What does that mean? Just some kid out of control, can't, can't control the toboggan. The point is, this bomb, we were going to drop this bomb no matter what. And Harry Truman was not going to stop it. And he didn't try to stop it. And it was really a fait accompli. By the time he became president, we were on the way to dropping this thing. And, and Truman had little to do with it. Now, that is a harsh judgment and not really true in the sense that Truman was the decider. He's the president. He was the decider. He, the buck does stop with him. But he was not very engaged in the debate over whether to drop the bomb or not. He had a kind of a minimal participation and he was a little bit clueless about the whole thing. I make a lot of a, of a diary entry he wrote on July 25th, 1945. So this is now what's about 10 days before they dropped the bomb. And Truman has signed the order, not signed the order, he's given the order. Henry Stimson signed it. He's given the order to drop the atom bombs, plural, on Japan. 
And Truman, President Truman, writes in his diary that the target is going to be purely military. We are not aiming at soldiers and sailors. Oh, excuse me. We are, we are aiming at soldiers and sailors. We are not aiming at women and children and women and kids. And, you know, you think, what? What are you thinking? The target is Hiroshima. And, you know, yes, that bomb did kill about 10,000 soldiers, 10 to 20,000 soldiers, but it also killed instantly about 50 to 60,000 civilians, most of whom were women and children because the men were off at war. So uh, yeah. what, the hell was, what the hell was Truman thinking? Now, uh, When it comes to real masters of moral ambiguity, of course, no one beat the old man, FDR, um, yeah, who right. had conveniently or otherwise left, uh, left the stage by then, only by a few months. I was just up in Hyde Park uh, last week at the FDR Museum. They've got an interesting uh, exhibit on FDR and race. Well, this is a counterfactual, of course, but you're a you're a a popular enough historian to be able to uh, imagine this. How, how do you think FDR would have behaved differently from Truman on this? He would not have. He would have dropped the bomb. I'm sure of it. But in terms of his management and approach to what you call moral ambiguity, because that was the the narrative of his life, the narrative of his life within the Democratic Party and his marriage and his relations with his family yeah. and everything else. All true. I mean, as you say, a master of moral ambiguity had a high tolerance for it in his personal life and in his political life. Uh, that's not to say he was an immoral man. I don't mean that at all. I think he was essentially a moral figure, but he certainly could tolerate the ambiguity that comes with leadership and making difficult decisions. And he was a little dodgy about it. You know, he wasn't the most truthful guy in the world. He would say different <laughs> things to different people. And so he might have, uh, he, you know, he might have ducked a little bit. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have been, I don't think he would have been like Truman saying the buck stops here and I'm responsible. He might have been a little dodgier about it. But ultimately, he would have had to have taken responsibility because he's the president. He couldn't. And avoid he it. was the one who bankrolled the project, the uh, the, the whole Los Alamos, the, the whole Manhattan project. He did. There are various theories about, you know, the only he wrote, I forget the exact wording, but he and Churchill agreed the year before that they're going to use this bomb, or we're probably going to use the bomb. Uh, I don't remember the exact language. They left themselves some outs, but not much of one, in the sense that. If it came to ending the war, they were going to use it. And, and Churchill was still alive. He was all for it. Uh, I mean, not not that he wasn't horrified by it, but if it's going to end the war. Well, they didn't know it was going to work war. either, did they, really? I mean, Yeah, that's the other thing. And this is an important point. You know, again, in hindsight, well, they worked. But at the time, they had tested a plutonium bomb, the Trinity test, which is a big part of this movie that everybody's going to be saying. That's on July 16th. So they tested one of the two types of bombs and it worked, the complex kind, the plutonium bomb that worked. They actually had not tested the bomb that they dropped on Hiroshima was a different, it was an atom bomb, but it was a gun type bomb. And, and uh, they hadn't tested that because they were sh pretty sure it would work. But, you know, they don't, they don't know how big a blast it is. Uh, Oppenheimer, the scientist, when there's a meeting on all this, 
in June. Oppenheimer predicts, they, they say, how big is this bomb? He says, well, somewhere between two kilotons and 20 kilotons. Well, the Hiroshima bomb was 12 to 15 kilotons, and the Nagasaki bomb was 20 kilotons, so the upper end of his estimate. He's asked, how many people will it kill? He says 20,000, about 20,000. It killed 70,000. You know, well, he didn't know enough. where it was going to get dropped, though, did he? He I mean, it depends. Oh, if you drop it in the desert, it's not going to kill anyone. Well, no, I, I you know, I, there's talk about that, that they wanted to do a demonstration. That talk was, and he was there. Oppenheimer was at that meeting. They dismissed that. Oppenheimer knew it was going to get dropped. He certainly did. He had regrets about it afterwards. That's what the movie's about. He felt guilty and, you know, blood was on his hands, as he said. But he knew it was going to be dropped. And in fact, and I, I don't know if this is a scene in the movie or not. We'll see. But when they drop the first one and word comes to Los Alamos, he greets his sinus and he's got it. He's holding his hands up like a prize fighter. We did it. We did it. And everybody cheers. But then they all get drunk and throw up in the bushes, uh, you know, because they're so un unhappy about it. As you say, the reaction had begun. What about, I mean, you pick good guys for the for these three characters. What about someone like Curtis LeMay, who, of course, led the firebombing of uh, Tokyo, yeah. killing tens, hundreds of thousands of Japanese in some ways, a much crueler um, yeah, yeah, yeah. war. I mean, he was fictionalized in Doctor Strangelove. How does someone like LeMay fit into all this? He does. I, I think he's gotten a bit of a bum rap from history. LeMay said a lot of outrageous stuff. Like, you know, we should bomb about Vietnam. He said we should bomb them back into the Stone Age or something like that. And in the movies, as you said, he's, you know, in Dr. Strangelove, he's this, you know, General Jack Ripper or whatever the hell they called him. But yeah, he gets, he says, but he, and he never smiled and he, and he, he, he came across the killer. But I, in, in my book, I have a somewhat more benign view of him in this sense. He has sent it to the Pacific to get some results. And he replaces a guy named Hansen who's trying to bomb Japan with precision bombing from an altitude of 30,000 feet. And it's not working because we discover we have this new plane, the B-29, and it's getting blown off course by a, a new discovery, a wind we now call the jet stream. They didn't know about the jet stream in 1944, 45 when they started doing this. And so they're quote, precision bombing is inaccurate. So LeMay says, let's try something else. Let's come in low at night and drop incendiaries. And they do. And on the night of March 10th, 1945, they drop incendiaries and it burns out 16 square miles of Tokyo and it kills 100,000 people. More than Hiroshima. More people died in six hours than in any military engagement in history. Civilians, almost all. So it's horrible, but I'm not totally unsympathetic to a military commander who's been told, look, you've got to get some results here. Precision bombing is not working. We've just spent $3 billion on this airplane, the B-29. Come on, you got to get some results. And this is his inventive approach to getting results. And he does get results. They end up burning 60 cities. And, you know, we can paint LeMay as this kind of ugly mass killer, but he was, you didn't, Washington was hardly stopping him. They weren't objecting. 
My man, Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, is bothered and troubled by the firebombing and thinks he has a promise from his assistant secretary, Robert Lovett, to stop the firing firebombing. But it doesn't happen. They don't stop it. And Stimson is kind of old and weary, and he really doesn't follow through on it because <clears throat> the truth is they don't have any other means. It's, it's You know, the historians now call it terror bombing. It was terrifying, but they were they were aiming at, at economic targets. They were aiming at factories and, and so forth. Now, they killed an awful lot of people to destroy those targets. So I don't want to get too, I don't want to rationalize this too much. What about the international political dimension? You argue, Evan, that the alternatives would have been worse. One alternative, as you say, is starving them out, besieging them. Um, when the bomb was dropped, Truman was at the Potsdam conference with Stalin. They were negotiating the Russian, I think, entrance into the, uh, the war in the Pacific. How can we be sure that that alternative would have been worse? Japan was, uh, Germany had surrendered. Japan was fighting alone. The Russians were about to, in, uh, to enter the war. Isn't it? Here's what we, here's what we know. That the, but, the, but in terms of your your foreign minister, Togo, was already in favor of, of, of a Japanese surrender. At a certain point, wouldn't the Japanese have come to terms with the reality? Uh, no. Uh, and here's why. Uh, Togo was all for surrendering. There are six people who run Japan, the Supreme War Council. Togo wants to surrender. He's the only one. The other five are determined to fight to the bitter end, including the war minister, Anami. And so here's the, the, the key scene. After we drop the second bomb, the second bomb, there's a meeting of the War Council. And Anami, the war minister, said, wouldn't it be beautiful if the entire country was to perish like a cherry blossom? He wants it's a suicidal. That's after we've dropped two bombs. And the Russians have declared war the night before. And the, the, the War Council is split on whether to surrender. It's basically three to three. Fortunately, the emperor intervenes that night with Togo pushing them, uh, and they do surrender. But even then, it's not a done deal. Even though the emperor says, let's surrender, he wants his followers say, no, you have to be sovereign. You can't, you can't give up your, your – he's, he's divine. He's a deity. And so the Americans reject that, and, and, and it goes on for another four or five days. There's a coup attempt. On the, the emperor decides again to surrender. There's a coup attempt. There are soldiers running through the palace trying to find the recording of the emperor's surrender speech that's supposed to be played the next day at noontime, trying to find that record to smash it so that he can't surrender. The point is, it's a very close thing. Even with the emperor wishing to surrender, they almost the, the military almost stops it because they want to keep on fighting, partly because of this crazy death wish. And, you know, the Japanese have a long history of did then uh, a, a kind of a fascination with suicide uh, and also because they think if they can make the Americans bleed enough this is not so crazy actually this is rational if they can make us bleed enough force us to invade kill hundreds of thousands of, of Americans the Americans will give them what they really want which is no occupation we won't occupy Japan no war crimes trials because they, you know the heads of Japan know their war crime trials coming if they if they surrender, and they get to keep their emperor. That's what the Japanese wanted. 
they knew they lost. Their fleet was sunk. You know, their armies had been defeated. But they wanted, they, they didn't want an American occupation. And it was not crazy of them to think that if they made us bleed enough, we'd give them that. We'd get tired of it and, and, and give them that. So that's the real, so the point The point of this is Japan was not ready to surrender. I know there are a lot of revisionist historians who say we dropped those bombs unnecessarily because Japan was defeated and ready to surrender. No, that's not true. The evidence points to continued strong Japanese resistance to the bitter end. Evan, last year I had Leslie Bloom on the show. She has an excellent book out. You've probably read it, Fallout. The yep. Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world about John Hershey. Yep. I don't want to go over all that. But how was the news greeted, so to speak, in the United States? Were there critics at the time when the bomb was dropped? Very few. The, the people were pretty enthusiastic about it because it means the end of the war. So there was a little bit of, little bit of pushback at the time. Some religious publications, religious figures. But most Americans welcome it. And some say we should have dropped more. This revenge motif that you were talking about at the beginning of the show. Uh, now, what, what changes that? Just as you just pointed to, John Hersey, a New Yorker writer, a year later, runs uh, an article in The New Yorker where he describes what happened in Hiroshima. And he describes the experiences of six people. And it's ghastly. It's just awful. And people read that, not just New Yorker readers, but it's broadcast and published all over the United States. So millions and millions of people read it and are aware of it. And they're shocked by it. And the sentiment changes. And people now, not a majority maybe, but a lot of Americans are really troubled by what we did. And they start asking, hey, couldn't we have done a demonstration? You know, do we really have to do this? And again, I mentioned this earlier, but there was talk about doing a demonstration, but it was ruled out. Because if we tell the Japanese we're about we're doing a demonstration, for them, we only have two bombs, uh, but uh, and, and a third on the way, but two at the time. Uh, and what happens if they shoot the plane down? Or what happens if they put POWs at the target site, which is something the Japanese are fully capable of doing? What happens if it's a dud? Oppenheimer was part of that discussion. And that happened at a, at, a, at a meeting in Washington in early June. And they fairly summarily rejected the idea of a demonstration, and I think not unreasonably. As I said, you've written many books. One of your best known is co-authored with uh, Walter Isaacson, old friend of mine being on the show, The Wise Men, Six Friends and the World They Made. It's about the American, I guess, foreign policy establishment after the war, Dean Asherson, Avril Harriman, George Kennan, and so on. You talked about moral ambiguity. Was this um, something that you think this new elite, the wise men who you write about in this book, they had to go through it. Was this moment when America grew up, for better or worse, in the world? Yes. Um, I, one way to, to look at this is, and I'm going to speak in generalities here, but I think it's useful. American foreign policy has always been this balance, often uneasy balance between what you might say realism and idealism. The idealism first. The idealism is unlike many, most countries through history, Americans do believe in freedom and democracy and good things, you know, and we want to spread that 
this Wilsonian ideal of spreading democracy and freedom through the world. And that was a particularly American thing. And it was not imperialist. You know, it was, and that was the idealistic part. But it's often been married to a realistic streak. People, you think of Henry Kissinger, balance of power. Uh, you know, don't get too gushy and mushy about this. We have to do things that are in the national interests. Oil, say. We need oil. So we got to make deals with people we don't necessarily like. You know, Saudi, Saudis and Arabs that who might be opposed to us in other circumstances. So there's always been this balancing act between realism and idealism. But, but it, undergirding it all is a sense that America has to be in the world. We can't just come home again. After World War II, there is this group, and Walter and I wrote about it, the wise men, that says, look, we, you know, Abel Harriman said, most Americans just want to come home, go to the movies, and drink Coke. They're done. We won this war. Let's go. go. These guys said, no. And the apple okay. pie. What? What about the hot dogs and the apple pie? Yeah, right. Uh, but these, this group, and, you know, ultimately Harry Truman and others, said, no, no, America has this new role. Britain is fading out as an imperial power, and we're going to replace that with something better than empire, better than imperialism. It's going to be more idealistic in principle, but it's going to be in the world. And, and, and you can make a pretty good argument that that was a good bargain for the world. It gave us free trade, and many, many nations benefited from global trade. I'm no expert on this, but Stephen Pinker and others have written about this. This whole system of global free trade that came out of 1945 in the post-war world, created by the wise men and people like them, has been good for the world. And yes, there have been wars, some ugly ones like Vietnam, but there's never been a really big war. There's never been a world war. And so that they kept the peace while extending freedom and free trade, economic freedom, but also also political freedom to many corners of the world. That's a positive story. There are lots of ugly things that happen along the way. We exaggerated the Soviet threat and the arms race was scary as hell. And Vietnam was a bad war. And I can go on and on. The CIA overthrew governments. I, I can go on and on about all the mistakes we made. But on the whole, this balance of realism and idealism for the last 75 years has been good for the United States, for sure, but also good for the world. Yeah, we had a historian on uh, who, who, who wrote a book called We Are Better Than This, which presented uh, the dropping of the bomb as something which, um, which is un-American. I'm, I'm guessing, uh, and from what you said, that you don't believe that's the case. Final question, uh, Evan. Uh, Christopher Nolan, who um, is the director of Oppenheimer, has said that he wants Oppenheimer to be a cautionary tale for Silicon Valley as we're on the verge of a new kind of technology that yeah. seems to be radically changing the world, AI, maybe not quite like nuclear power yeah. or nuclear weapons, but yeah. some way similar in its impact on the world. Do you think Nolan's right? Can we learn from this chapter when it comes to new technology and how we should and shouldn't use it? Well, I hope so. I mean, there's a, you know, the sub theme here is can, does technology get ahead of human beings? Is science, can Americans keep up with, can human beings keep up with the science they create or will the, will their creation kill us? I mean, to be apocalyptic and uh, you know, the, the fear with AI is that the AI will become sentient and decide that that doesn't need humans anymore and eliminate us. I mean, every, 
your listeners know the scenario. And that's that. that so this movie comes up at a very opportune moment where we've created this science, a, a artificial intelligence, which like the atom bomb, like nuclear power, runs the risk of wiping us all out. I, I think those fears are apocalyptic and maybe exaggerated, but what the hell do I know? It's, it's early days. Uh, this is a new thing. I share those fears and concerns. I'm not very knowledgeable in this area, but it's interesting to me that a lot of scientists are talking this way. They're sounding kind of like Oppenheimer. Oh my God, what have we done? What have we created here? 